0: You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC. Where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research Inc., a registered broker dealer, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff.
1: Welcome to Financial Clarity for Doctors. My name is Corey Janoff, joined as always by Rochelle Vanderzanden. Hello. And today, we're going to dive into the fun topic of investing in startup companies. So as doctors, you guys will frequently be approached by friends, family members, acquaintances to you know invest in, in their businesses or business ideas. Hey, I've got this cool business idea that I'm starting. We're looking for investors. Would you like to participate? And with a lot of them, you'll just say no. But some of them might intrigue you and interest you, or maybe just for one reason or another, you want to support your friend or family member so you'll you'll throw in a couple bucks but um, you know, we want to talk today and give you some primers on things to be aware of, things to consider, so that you can make smart decisions when it comes to those investments. Now, this is kind of outside of Rochelle and I's area of expertise. Um, you know, we don't really advise directly on this, and I don't even know if our licenses and uh, insurance covers it. But, uh, but we figured, given it is a somewhat frequent topic that comes up amongst our clients, let's let's dive into it on the podcast. So we. Brought Brought in someone who does specialize in this arena. Our guest today is an attorney who who specializes in startup companies and, and advising people on their investments in startups and uh, and the contract language and the terms of the agreement and negotiating on their behalf. Um, and full disclosure, today's. The episode is just information only. This should not be considered investment or legal advice. So definitely uh, consult with with professionals to get specific uh, guidance on your individual circumstances. But Hopefully we equip you with some good information today uh, to at least give you some food for thought. So our guest today is a good friend of mine. He's got a a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration, an MBA, and a law degree from the greatest school in the land, the University of Southern California. And uh, like I said, he's an attorney that specializes in startup companies. He's helped review contracts uh, for some of my clients, and they've had nothing but good things to say. About him, so Mr. Eric Pearlmutter Combiner or EPG for short, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hey
2: guys, thanks for having me on. Um, and yeah, thanks as, as for Corey, Of course, as, as Corey mentioned, yeah, I pretty much do startup stuff all day. Um, work, you know, mostly on the company side, but some, you know, pretty big names like Barstool Sports is one uh, that we've done a lot of work for over the last couple of years. Um, but represent investors as well, so like I really get to see kind of the full picture of how this ecosystem works for everybody.
1: Yes. So we're excited to pick your brain a little bit here and uh, extract as much free information as we can from you. But um, I guess, you know, maybe just starting off, like I mentioned in the intro, doctors get pitched business ideas from, you know, people all the time. If you were in their shoes, you know, what would you, what are some things you want to see before you consider making an investment?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's three things that would really stand out to me as an investor. Like I'd want to see a business plan from the person, you know, what, uh, what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, when they're going to do it, you know, definitive milestones of what they plan to accomplish when, um, and how they want to use my money, um, and how, You know, and when they're going to use it, you know, something that really clearly shows like an 18 month plan, a three year plan, a five year plan. So I know what I'm getting into. Um, I want to see some sort of experience. Um, I know that's kind of like antithetical with the startup because, you know, somebody's like starting something new. But I want to see like that they've done something in that industry before, you know, that there's a reason why. They're capable of pulling this off, um, and then the last thing I want to see really is devotion. Um, you know, I want to know that they're all in and that this isn't like a side hustle for them. You know, it's it's okay, like if there's a few co-founders that maybe like one of them hasn't quit their job or you know has got a family needs income or something like that. But I really wouldn't feel comfortable investing in a startup where everybody else is still working some other full-time job and this is like a night and weekend project for them. Uh, like startups are super, super, super grind, um, and I'd want to know that these guys are all in if I'm going to give them money.
0: Makes
1: sense. sense. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Rochelle.
0: Yeah, no, I was just going to say that makes a lot of sense. I do feel like people get like a, a certain amount of information and a lot of times it just doesn't seem like enough personally. Um, so I think just knowing the questions to ask is is a really big help for clients. What are some of the differences when you're investing between, you know, investing before a company is really operational and like after they're up and running and like kind of on their way a little bit? Where do you think is like the ideal stage to get into it?
2: Or is I that mean, one? the ideal stage is obviously right before an exit when you can get a quick multiple of a lot mm-hmm. of money and get out really quickly. Um, but, but absent that. Um, I mean, it really depends. It's just a different risk reward calculus. You know, the earlier you get you get in, you know, the more reward you're hoping for. You're hoping for, you know, some big multiple, five, you know, 10, 15, 20 times your investment, because there's a ton of risk if you get in, especially if it's early before it's operational, that like it might not even launch you know, once it becomes operational, your kind of reward expectations are tempered um, and, and you're expecting a little bit less, but you're able to go off of things like you can look at the past financial performance. You can see, you know, how, what their growth is like. You can see like, are they, I mean, you would never expect them to make money, but you can see like, you know, are their costs like out of control, you know, are they able to go like a year without raising money? Because usually startups should be raising money every like 12 to 18 months. Um, so it, it really just depends. But I would say if you're investing pre-revenue, it's much, much more about like the people. Um, and then if you're investing, you know, once they're operational, people are still really important, but then you want to see results from those people.
1: Makes sense. What are some of the different ways that, um, investment opportunities are structured?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few different ways that you might see something like this. Um, you know, typically it would either be an equity investment or a convertible debt investment. Um, if it's an equity investment, you're just, it's like buying stock, uh, you know, in a company that's on like the NASDAQ or whatever stock exchange, except the difference is, is that you can't sell it when you want to. Um, you really have no protection or downside protection. From buying equity, um, you know, if if the company goes under, if things don't go well, like you're kind of you're screwed. Um, You know, convertible debt, which is usually offered by earlier stage companies, offers a little bit more protection. Um, You know that that gives you the way that that works is basically you're loaning the company now, and then the company gets to decide later on, um, or you get to decide later on: is the company going to pay me back, or are they going to convert it into equity? And that option is kind of a really powerful lever for the investor because. You can if they're unable to raise more money, which would convert the debt, um, then you can kind of hold that debt as a hammer over the company um, and say, "Hey, like either pay me my money back, or I'm going to take over the company. I'm going to take control of the company." Um, it gives you a lot of leverage at that point in time.
1: And is that convertible debt? Like, is it the company's choice to convert, or can the investor decide they want to convert it or get their debt? Like, who's who has the power in that decision?
2: Almost all of the time, um, the company gets to choose to convert the debt if they can raise more equity. So you'll see something in there that says like, "Hey, we have a million dollars of convertible debt from a bunch of different, uh, you know, smaller investors. Um, but if we can find somebody to give us three million dollars of equity, then your debt automatically becomes equity." Um, and the benefit to you of doing convertible debt is that you're going to get more, uh, favorable terms when you convert into equity. You're going to get compensated for taking the risk <laughs> of coming in before somebody else wrote a big check.
1: Absolutely. If you wanted to, could you just say that nah, I'd rather just get my original loan back? Like, is that an option or kind of case by case more so?
2: Uh, I mean, you totally could. Um, but the interest rate on these is usually not super high. I mean, it's Got like it. something like a six to eight percent interest rate normally. And so, I mean, I I'm not the financial advisor, but I think if that's the return you were targeting, <laughs> these are super super risky investments for that.
0: That makes sense. That kind of brings me to another question: like, what is the general exit strategy with these these products, and and what's the timeline usually look like? Or you know, what? It, yeah, at what point do you maybe know you lost your money?
2: <laughs> yeah. It, so it's it's usually about a five to seven year investment, I would say. Um, Mm -hmm. for almost all of these companies, the exit strategy is being acquired by somebody else. Um, you know, a really smart founder will kind of think about an exit strategy when they found the company and work backwards, you know, try to figure out, you know, why whatever they're doing is likely to be acquired by Google or Apple, or, you know, if it's a medical device by a larger medical device company or something like that, um, and, and I mean, there's really not a lot of chances for liquidity before then. So it, it is definitely something where if you put your money in, like just assume that it's going to be tied up until you either make a return or like it's totally written off and lost. You know, it's not like, oh, three years from now, if, if suddenly you need cash, you're going to be able to get this back um, or get some portion of it back. It's kind of generally gone at that point in time. Um, and in terms of when you know your money's lost, I, I guess it's, you know, you should be getting quarterly updates uh, from the company. And, and when, they, when they start to get less and less rosy, um, that's a bad sign. But then also if you, you kind of can get financials and you see that maybe, you know, things aren't growing as much as they should, you know, that's a really bad sign in terms of money being lost. Um, or if they stop raising new money, because a lot of times, you know. companies need this new, you know, they don't generate enough cash by themselves to grow on their own money. They need outside capital, um, to grow the company. So if you stop hearing about new financings, um, you know, that's not a good sign.
1: So that's probably pretty rare. It sounds like to, for like a company to quickly become profitable and start, you know, paying out residual income to the investors. It's either like they get acquired or, you know, turn into a public company one day or something, or they just kind of fold. Is that what I'm understanding?
2: Yeah. Very, very few of these companies turn into lifestyle businesses. Um, you know, most people don't really found these kind of turn into the quote unquote lifestyle business where it pays out dividends. Um, and it just kind of hangs around forever. So yeah, it's either going to be a a sale. If you're super, super lucky, uh, an IPO or, uh, most likely nothing. (laughs)
0: How does that work if you have stock in a company that's not public and then it goes public like what happens to your shares
2: um, I mean y- your shares will be part of I guess the um, there will be like a lockup that's on you know the management shares but then eventually like your shares will convert into common stock and there'll be shares that you can then sell um, on the public market mm-hmm.
0: a lot more liquidity
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> So when it comes getting back to the, like the starting point of, of of the investment, you know, you said you could either get equity or convertible debt, those are the two common ones. Like how feasible or common is it to be able to negotiate the terms of that investment?
2: If you're the lead investor, so if you're the one writing the biggest check, you you get to set the terms. Um You know, if you're somebody who's just getting approached to kind of get in around the sides of the investment as part of like a friends and family piece, um, then it's pretty tough to do any real negotiation on the terms. But when I'm working with people on that end, like you know, I try to negotiate around the margins. I try to, you know, make sure that they have the right to put in more money so that if if things take off, because, you know, if it's a good investment, you know, you might want to chase it with more money. Um, I try to make sure that like, we get really full clarity of like the financial deal. Cause sometimes like there can be a lot of stuff going on, especially if there's like a private equity fund involved and, and people can be getting certain deals. So I try to just ask a lot of questions to get really full disclosure. Um, And then I try, you know, to the extent possible to make sure that, like, if there's a lead investor and we're on the side, um, that we're as aligned as possible with them. Because it's going to be hard for, you know, somebody who's a friends and family person to get real decision-making authority. But I want to make sure that the person who has the right to make decisions on their behalf is aligned with, you know, their same goals and expectations.
1: Absolutely. That would be helpful. And then, are there any, like, uh, when looking at the terms of those contracts, are there any must have components or any red flags that come up?
2: Yeah. I mean, so it depends if you're looking at, like, convertible debt or equity. If you're looking at convertible debt, um, there's real two must haves that I see. Um, You want to make sure that there's both a discount and a cap. And what a discount is, is it means that when the convertible debt converts into equity. It's the percentage discount you're getting um, on the purchase price that the new money coming in is paying. So basically, it is it is the compensation for the risk that you're taking by investing way earlier than somebody else. Um, and then the flip side of that is there's, is there's also something called a cap. Um, and that works in tandem with the discount. And it says, hey, like, if the discount doesn't provide me with enough upside, then instead, you know, I'm going to convert it into a certain value. Um, and so that's basically like setting a valuation for a convertible note. Um, and you really want to have both of those because, you know, if you only have a discount, um, you, you just, you know, really can only make kind of like an initial kind of 20% return based on what uh, the new money's coming in at. And if you only have a cap, then if they, uh, and especially if the cap is set too high and the company raises money at a lower valuation than you were expecting, then you don't get any benefit at all um, for coming in early. And
1: is that twenty? Per, is that like a common discount on convertible debt, 20% or is it kind of all over the place?
2: Yeah, I, I would say 20% is the common discount, in like probably 90% of these things. Uh, you'll okay. see sometimes, you know, 15 or 25%, but it's almost always 20%.
1: And then for a cap, like how does that – is it like a ratio of the initial value that you invested at or or how does that one – like what can you negotiate there?
2: The, the cap is, is kind of like the fictional value of the company at the time that you invest. Okay. Um, and like the dirty little secret and all these things is that like the valuation for like, you know, very early stage companies, uh, it's just totally made up. And it's just whatever the investors and the company like are willing to agree on. There's no rhyme or reason for any of it. But, you know, for somebody to say an idea is worth, you know, six million dollars by itself.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. So you're investing in a $6 million idea. Cause we all agree it's probably worth 6 million. So then if you're getting, you know, if you're putting in 1% of that, you'd get 60,000 as your cap, or maybe negotiate a little bit
2: higher. Cause you're hoping for some growth. Is that if you were putting in 60,000 and you wanted 1%, then yeah, you'd set the cap at 6 million. Okay. Got it. All right. Good to know. And, and then, yeah, a couple other things you'd look for is just, you know, information rights. If you're, you know, I'm, I'm assuming like it's kind of like a friends and family and you're like one of like the secondary investors. So information rights, making sure you're getting financial statements, making sure you're getting board reports, like updates about material events um, and then preemptive rights, like the right to put in more money if things take off. Because if it does become a really, really good idea, um, then you're probably going to want to be able to invest more in it.
1: And then are there any red flags like that? You just say, Hey, don't even consider this or, or you got to get this taken out of the, the terms?
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the, things that I, I guess would view as red flags are like any sort of like impediment to you getting your money back or really like if you start to find out about like side deals. Um, if you start to find out that there's other people who are going to like be providing services for the company and maybe they're going to help with like finding a location and they're going to charge like uh you know they they own a piece of the company but they're also going to be like you know charging rent for this like related party lease that they're going to be providing like all sorts of stuff like that where it seems like kind of people are are milking money out of the company before it goes to the investors
0: mm. Do you feel like there's a number of investors that's kind of ideal for a project? Or is there like a point where it gets to be too many or just not enough people are involved?
2: Yeah, I I think what I like to see is kind of one or two large investors that are writing checks for, you know, 60 to 80% of the round. Um, Mm -hmm. And then from there, you you can have a bunch of small investors that fill it out. Um, But like, let's say if you're raising like, you know, a million dollars and you've got 20 people putting in, you know, $50,000, like that's, that's not a great look. Like you want to see that, like somebody believes in enough that they're, you know, sophisticated and willing to write a big check.
0: Somebody with deep pockets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And then does it matter like who or, or the, those deep pockets are? Or could it be a, do you want it to see like a private equity fund or like a another company or if it's just, you know, some rich person who wants to invest a bunch of money? Like, does it matter what their background or pedigree is?
2: Yeah. I mean, I like to see it, you know, be a venture capital fund or private equity fund or somebody that knows what they're doing. Um, You know, there are occasionally, like, some startups that'll target, like, a rich person just because they want money and they don't want to give up much control. But, you know, as, like, a secondary investor... You always want to see somebody else writing a big check that clearly knows what they're doing because it's a good sign that you're also making a good decision. And then like that person's also going to add a ton of value to the company um, from their knowledge and experience. And you're going to get to piggyback off of that.
0: When the primary investor is someone that's involved in the project, does that a red flag like, oh, maybe they have too much committed to this?
2: Um, Like are you talking about like somebody who's like self-funding?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes.
2: No, I, I, I like that. Um, I okay. mean, it, it's good to see that somebody's, like, basically put their money where their mouth is. And, like, you know, if somebody's, they, they believe in it, they've, you know, liquidated, like, their portfolio to start this thing up, like, like that goes back to what we talked about in the beginning about, you know, making sure that people are committed and, and all in as opposed to, like, oh, you know, I'm going to do this after my full-time job for a couple hours, a few nights a week.
1: <laughs> so then do you think, like, is it more important to have good people running the business or the idea for the business or does it kind of go hand in hand or what's the has there one that, that you put more weight in than the other?
2: I would say good people are by far more important, um, you know, no matter how good the idea is, if you don't have somebody who's really smart, really organized, um, you know, a good leader, you know, you're, you're not going to end up uh, with a successful product like it is so, so hard to start a company. There's so much involved um, that like talent is always, you know, it's not always going to win out, but it's the most important thing.
0: Yeah. You talked a little bit about quarterly updates that are generally expected. Is that like the only communication that investors generally receive or are there other kinds of information that people should expect to be getting?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if you're kind of a secondary investor, you should be getting some kind of like quarterly email, Uh, You know, it might be a page or two pages or whatever, just letting you know what's going on. Um, And then you should ask for and hope to get like annual financial statements, Um, you know, but beyond but beyond that, you're probably not going to get much else formally. You know, informally, of course, you can always, uh, you know, call or text the person, uh, reach out, see how things are going. Uh, But but keep in mind that, like, you shouldn't harass them. You know, don't ask Mm -hmm. every week, you know, what's going on. This isn't like Apple with a stock price listed on you know the NASDAQ that you can check or whatever, you know.
1: Makes sense. So we're all well aware that that most startups don't pan out. So, yeah, I guess maybe what should the expectations be going in? And and, uh, aside from what we've already covered, is there anything, any strategies for investing to so that you're not just throwing money away?
2: Yeah, Um, I mean, I think the expectation always going in should be that, like, this is a lotto ticket. And that, like, if it hits, that's awesome. If it doesn't, like, it was just a scratcher you could toss off into the trash anyway. Um, But in terms of strategies, I think there's really two things to think about. Um, The first is to invest in what you know, um, you know, because that makes it a lot easier for you to evaluate, uh, you know, how good or bad the idea is, what kind of potential it has. Um, You know, I know a lot of... Uh, like there's a thing called Y Combinator, which is a big accelerator in the Bay area. And like a lot of like medical devices, uh, companies come out of there, startups come out of there. So like, maybe that's a good thing for people who are listening to this podcast, who are doctors, you know, who can evaluate, you know, how good or bad or useful these devices are, what the market is for something like that. Um, and they, and then you kind of get yourself an advantage on that, you know, relative to like. If you're investing in some random consumer products company that you don't know anything about, um, you know it becomes much more of just like throwing darts at a dartboard. Um, so yeah, definitely put your kind of specialized knowledge to use. And then the other thing is to just diversify. Um, you know, if you've got a hundred thousand dollars, you want to invest in startups, and somebody comes to you, you know, don't put the whole hundred thousand dollars in the first one. You know, put a little bit in that one and wait uh, and, and see what else comes down the line. Um, because, you know, the odds are that like, you know, none of these, you know, or these all are not all going to hit really, really big, but, you know, one or maybe two or whatever, depending on how big your portfolio are going to hit really big and they're going to get you a home run return that makes up for the losses on the other.
1: And is that one or two out of 10, 50, 100? <laughs> That's what like, I was going to ask, Corey. <laughs>
2: It depends on how good uh, the opportunity is getting presented to you are but yeah I mean it's it's one or you know a true home run is like one out of 50 or something like that uh, okay. yeah
1: so then for like if you have your hundred thousand that that you're gonna do this like do you just put two thousand in each or is there a minimum investment that a lot of these places want
2: yeah I mean it depends on how early you're coming into the company usually the earlier you come in uh, the smaller check size you can write Um but yeah, I mean, I I would do something like, you know, 25,000 to each one, you know, enough where like, if you get a, a 10 or 15 x return, like it's, it's really going to do something for you. Um, but not so big that like, if you lost it entirely, um, you know, you're in a bad spot.
0: I do think that's, Sorry, no, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> I was just saying, if you just put in 2000 bucks and you make a 10 times return on that, uh, I mean, I guess you can buy a Civic, but it's not going to do a ton for you.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that. I mean, it, it's a good point to kind of harp on because it's not a small investment. So for most people, like you kind of have to have everything else on track before we're kind of thinking about doing this. Like it's important to make sure that we're, we're doing retirement planning and all of that kind of stuff before you're doing this, because it's, it's extra, it's not necessarily going to pay off. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like long-term. But it, you know, it can be lucrative.
2: Yeah. I would think of these as more like, a fun hobby thing rather than like an integral part of a financial plan. Like if it's something you enjoy, you're interested in, you want to learn about these companies, you want to get involved and you're willing to pay some money to do it. But don't go into it thinking like, Oh, if I put in a hundred thousand dollars in this, you know, that's for sure gonna be two million dollars, you know, five years from now that I can, you know, put towards whatever, a house that or second house. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: You know, let's make sure the plan still works just fine without assuming this money goes down the drain and you never see a, a penny back. <laughs> um, I guess anything else you can think of that doctors should be aware of before considering these types of investments?
2: Yeah. I, I think one thing that I've seen kind of come up a bunch of times is, you know, people getting a, a first chance at liquidity uh, from an investment. Um, and and not necessarily selling like you know like someone comes and says i want to buy like you know two-thirds of this company you get the opportunity to either sell or like hold on and roll forward um Always, always, always sell enough to at least get your initial investment back. Uh, However good you think the company is doing, however lucrative you think that second chance is going to be, it very, very rarely comes. That first bite of the apple is almost always the best and only bite, so just take some of it when you can.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, that's not something I knew or would have expected, but...
1: Yeah, it makes sense. Just you're going in with an extremely risky investment that you're expecting to not see any money back from. So if they're willing to give you something back, Mm -hmm. let's take it and be happy. And then sure, we could leave a little bit more in there for hopes that we see more in the future. But yeah, take your winnings off the table if you can.
2: Yeah, I've seen a lot of people. You know, this has come up several times where there's been, you know, a first bite and people hold off and they don't sell and wait for a second bite and they get into everything gets wiped out and there is no second bite. Um, So definitely take some profits off the table when you can and enjoy them a little bit.
1: Are there like any common themes or causes for that second bite not happening, or is it just an array of of the business world changing environments, risks, sentiment, people?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is that, like, these investments, these companies are still really, really risky. Um, and so, you know, just because somebody's coming in and offering to to buy a piece of that company um, at some point, you know, a big piece of the company at that point in time doesn't make the company any less risky going forward. Um, you know, the big expansion plans that they could have, you know, lined up, you know, as to why somebody wants to come in, you know, could totally fail, you know. There, there's you're still not dealing with like a Ford or GM or something like that where like no matter what they're going to sell 20 million cars a year. Like these are risky risky companies and and when people come in and they want to you know do this first bite at the apple like they're also being compensated for their risk. So they're going to make sure they get a lot of downside protection and the way that that usually works is that the last money in is the most protected. And so you're going to lose some of the protections you had. Got it good to know
0: this has been really enlightening i think i know even less about this than Corey, so thank you very
1: much
2: (laughs) yeah of course happy to hop on and and talk to you guys and and yeah hopefully uh your listeners will get something about you out of this
1: absolutely yeah thanks a bunch eric no
2: problem
0: We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC.
1: You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP. Instagram at Corey Janoff or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff.
0: You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vandersanen Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vandersanen.
1: Check out all of the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast on our Finity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog.